words to live by, and, and we're in that series for the next few weeks, and then as you heard me say, we're going to move to the gospel of Matthew, but this morning is the second of five faithful sayings, so we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, focusing on verses 8 and 9, and, and in just a few minutes, we'll read verses 6 through 9. But thinking about this idea, words to live by, uh, in, in my house, we had a number of sayings, and, and often they were from movie quotes that became a, a way to communicate. And, and so I've got a few of them that, that became uh, sayings in the Reed family growing up. And my challenge to you is see if you can name the movie these quotes come from. Uh, and so you can raise your hand, you can shout it out, it's okay uh, if you know the movie quote to, to just let me know. The first is, I've got a bad feeling about this. Star Wars, I heard it. That's right. That is, uh, and actually every Star Wars movie, that's exactly right. Uh, we, we just say it all the time. I got a bad feeling about this. Uh, here's another one. I'm fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. This is maybe a little more obscure. I'm fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. That's from the original Ghostbusters. Uh, that is Peter Venkman saying, I'm fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. Uh, and then here's a, maybe a, a real challenge. Only you crazy movie busts from the 80s will know this one. But uh, he says, you should have seen the toast. I couldn't even get it through the door. You should have seen the toast. I couldn't even get it through the door. That's, that's right. That's John Candy and Uncle Buck. When, when my wife uh, it was, when we were dating, she would come over for family meals and she'd just sit there like, what are these people talking about? Like, why are they saying these things? And it took her a while to catch on. We're just quoting movies and they happened to be all movies she'd never seen. So she thought we were nuts as we'd just say, you should have seen the toast. And she's like, there's no toast. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Well, I imagine in your households, there were sayings, that, that words that just became uh, very, very common. Some other ones in our house that weren't movie quotes. Uh, my mom, when my brother Tyler and I would tr were in trouble, would say something like, um, I can make another one just like you, you know. So we heard that a lot. That was like, hey, you're getting close uh, to me, you know, taking you out of this world. In fact, she would say that. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And, and my mother was very loving. Uh, I don't want you to get the bad impression, but uh, we heard that a lot because we were getting into trouble. Um, I also, when we, my brother and I were fighting, I'd hear, I don't care who started it, right? That, that was a, a common one. Um, my dad, who has, has since gone to be with the Lord, his advice was often very simply just, be kind, be kind. Um, but was there something like that that any of you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, words that became so common in your household that you heard them over and over and over again. Uh, anybody got one of those they want to share? Go ahead, Darren. Uh, you can't talk and eat. You know, you can't talk and chew. Okay, you can't talk and chew at the same time. That's, <laughs> that's right. Otherwise, watch out. You'll be in the, the splash zone. Good. Anybody else? A saying from your, your family that just so common you heard it over and over again. Life isn't fair, and were you raised in a barn? That'd be fun to put those two together. <laughs> Life isn't fair, I was raised in a barn. <laughs> no, I get it. Were you... well, because I said so, yes. Anybody been asked why a bunch of times as a parent knows that one? Uh, that's good. Any others? Remember who you are. That's good. That, that's That's good. Um, I, I feel like, I mean, dads, we've got maybe one or two of these, but moms seem to, I don't know, do you go to class somewhere and they just give you all these? I don't know, because moms seem to just have them at the ready, you know? <laughs> we were in the men's uh, Bible study this morning, and that, that question was asked, what were some sayings? And boy, we all kind of struggled with coming up, but I, I bet if you were asked in the ladies' class, that was real easy to come up with all those sayings, which if you don't know, there is a Bible study at 915 just before this service. I invite you to that for sure. But uh, the reason I want to focus on these words to live by is because Paul seems to be doing that in the passage we mentioned to Timothy, a young man in the faith. Paul uh, may have led Timothy to the Lord, but certainly was involved in Timothy's discipleship, kind of took him under his wing and, and raised him up to where Timothy now is pastoring a church in Ephesus. 
And Paul's writing him this encouraging letter for Timothy to uh, have as he pastors. And he, he, almost like with a highlighter, a few times says, hey, Timothy, these are some words to live by. And last week, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, these words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And we really focused a lot on that phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's, that's that there is a God who made everything, including us, so he owns us and he deserves our worship. We are commanded because we're made in the image of God to love him and to love others. But sadly, man, we, we've not lived up to that. All of us have fallen short. We've not loved God with our whole heart, mind, our, our whole soul, our whole strength, and we certainly haven't loved every neighbor as ourselves. And so what we deserve is the punishment of God forever in a terrible place called hell. But... Christ, God loved us so much that he sent his son to live the perfect life we couldn't, to die in our place on the cross for our sin. And if we respond by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus, we will be forgiven and have the hope of heaven forever. That, in a nutshell, is what Paul wanted Timothy to live by. Uh, God, man, Christ, and response. And we saw how, you know, really what Paul is doing is, is he's reminding Timothy of the, the words that Jesus gave the church when he ascended. That is to go and make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. A, a follower of Jesus is someone who trusts Jesus, who learns about Jesus from the Bible, who grows to be more like Jesus, and who serves others the way Jesus came to serve. And that God has also called us to help one another. It's not like I just go be a Christian way over here by myself. Uh, this church thing is created and owned by Jesus. If you didn't know, it's not my church. It's not Wesley's church. This is Jesus' church. We are just blessed to be part of the church of Jesus. But what he does is he allows us to come alongside one another and to help each other. And so each of you, if you are a Christian, there are people that you are uniquely called to help them follow Christ. Well, how do I help someone follow Christ? Well, you, you help someone by loving them so that they can know of God's love for them and come to trust in Jesus. You, you teach them. There, there is teaching that you are called to do. I've heard way too many times Christians say, well, I couldn't teach anybody. You're probably teaching people whether you know it or not. The, the question is just whether you're a good teacher or not, right? Somebody's watching you. Somebody's learning from you. Um, if you have kids or grandkids or family and, and they know you're a Christian, they're watching. They're, they're, they're learning from you. And, and at this church, I want you to be equipped to teach others about God well. You're called to help people by modeling for, by being an example. Again, same thing as before. You're a model for others, whether you like it or not. If, if they know you're a Christian, they're looking at you. I had this one young man in college, kind of freaked me out a little bit. I'd been in the dorm room at the University of Florida about a month, and Brad was his name, and he came to me and he said, um, hey, Jared, I've been watching you this past month. And I was like, boy, Brad, that's kind of freaky. You know, <laughs> what do you mean by that? And he said, no, no, we, you know, we had uh, that meeting and you shared with all of us that you're a Christian. And I've just been kind of watching how you interact with people to, to see what does that mean. And I considered myself a Christian, but as, as I've been listening to you, I've learned that there's something different, that, that you actually have a relationship with Jesus. And uh, I want that. How do I actually become a Christian? And, and boy, I was floored because I have no idea. You know, I was, Brad was just a friend. He lived across the hall. I, you know, I, I, somebody's watching you, Christian. And, and, and it is your job not to be perfect. Please do not set yourself on that pedestal, but to be an example of what does it mean to be a Christ follower. And last, you're called to be a coach. That is to help, especially younger Christians in the faith, learn what it means to serve and to love others, whether that's here in the church or the community or around the world. So you are called to love, to teach, to model, and to coach. Well, today, we're going to really hone in on those words learning and teaching, and we're going to see those uh, front and center in 
Paul's words to Timothy. Uh, I didn't invite this last week, and I don't mean this as an obligation, so if, if you are not able, please don't hear that. But we're about to read God's word, and those of you who are able and would like to, I invite you to stand just in honor of our Lord and Savior. This is straight out of the book of Nehemiah when they stood in honor of the word being read by Ezra the priest. We're reading out of 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. God's word says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, use your word. Don't let it return void as you've promised. Do a work in our hearts. Move us closer to Jesus. And I pray, especially if there's someone here who has not yet taken that step of faith like Brad hadn't, that you move their hearts so that you know how much you love them and that they are ready to give their life to you today. But all of us, Lord Jesus, draw us closer to you and let this be for your glory. I ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that's where we get again this idea that these are words to live by. These aren't just words that you kind of hear real quick and then let go. Uh, these are words that should dictate how we live, the choices that we make. And remember, last week we saw that there were two in the church at Ephesus, Alexander and Hymenaeus, who had started listening to some other words and then had decided they no longer believed this Jesus stuff. They, they found something better, and they left the church. They, they claimed no longer to believe that Jesus was the Lord and Savior that he is. And so Paul says they had made a shipwreck of their faith. You see, Paul wants Timothy, and even at that time, in a world of words, to slow down, to stop, to listen up and have something to cling to. In the beginning of chapter four, before verse six, Paul says, hey, we know, Timothy, that is the days grow closer to Jesus coming back, that there are gonna be more and more people leaving the church and that they're going to believe things that are false. He says that there are gonna be teachers who, who say things that are both clearly wrong and things that are a distraction. And the examples he gives is there are teachers at the time who are saying, you can't get married and be close to God. And I'm so glad that is a false teaching. Uh, I have been happily married now for a number of years to my beautiful wife, and we have five kids. And I can tell you marriage is a God-honoring thing. That is a false teaching that you cannot be married as a Christian. But they were also saying that there were certain foods that if you ate them would draw you a little bit away from the Lord. Like you couldn't be a super Christian and eat these foods. And it was something that Paul considered a distraction. It had nothing to do with actually honoring Christ. Have you thought about it all this week? What words it would take to shipwreck your faith? What, what words would distract you from walking with Jesus. Well, well, look with me back in verse 7. First uh, Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 said to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. There's two words there. Myths means things that aren't true, right? Uh, the, these are false claims. But there's two types. There's irreverent and then there's just silly. <laughs> um, I think by irreverent, what Paul means there is something that is clearly wrong. It does not accord with the Bible. And then there's silly. And this is something that is a distraction. And, and let's, let's get this into today, right? Uh, you could go on Amazon and you could look in the Christian section of the bookstore of Amazon, and I promise you there are going to be numerous books that do not honor Christ in the Christian section of Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you know, whatever uh, bookstore you go to. 
And then there are things that um, are subjects we could get fascinated about, right? That are not necessarily wrong, but they can become a distraction from walking with Christ. So there are things that are clearly wrong because they go against the teaching of Scripture, especially on the person and work of Jesus. Uh, you've known somebody, right, who was a very good person and, and, and a very moral person, but they maybe didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead or that he really was fully God and fully man or that he really was the only way to be saved. When there's a teaching that goes against these things, it is irreverent and it is a myth. It is a false teaching. And then there are these subjects, and I, I find this to be a little bit more prevalent when I talk with people, that, that fascinate us, but they can become a distraction. For instance, I had a friend once, uh, a Christian friend, who got very much into studying about angels and demons and became so fascinated by angels and demons that he, he really became a subject matter expert. And it wasn't that studying them was wrong, but he was still barely familiar with what it meant to worship Jesus or to walk with Jesus. And it got to a point where he really didn't care about, you know, what, what the Bible said about walking with Jesus. He just wanted to learn about angels. He just wanted to learn about demons. And, and it became a distraction for him. Uh, not, not again that studying angels and demons are wrong, but if it becomes so engrossing that it's an obsession to where you don't really care about, you know, that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and he's called us to make disciples, something has gotten off. And I think Paul would call that silly for Christians to care more about a demon than they do about Jesus. And there are many things like this that, that can become an unhealthy obsession. And so I just want you to hear those words today that, that we are supposed to have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Now, Christian, I hope that you are the type that likes reading good Christian books. And, and uh, there are, if you don't know about them, this hallway over here, there's a, a little uh, shelf unit that has some excellent Christian books on it. Uh, if you want, though, I'd say the best way to know, well, what are good Christian books is to ask other good Christians. Uh, find a mature Christian. Maybe it's your Bible study leader. Uh, maybe you come ask me or Wes or one of the elders here at the church. I, I'm such a book nerd. I would love to talk to you about your next great Christian read. Uh, don't let, though, any book take priority over this one, please. Every book you read must be weighed first against the priority of the Word of God. There is no book better than this one for walking the Christian life. All right, with, with the warning set aside, look with me now in verse 7 and 8 to what Paul turns to. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. That word train there, it's not choo-choo, right? Uh, this is the, the Greek word. I don't normally share this, but this is going to be so easy. The Greek word is gymnazo. Now, what does gymnazo sound like? Gymnastics, gymnasium, right? It's, it's the same root. It means athletic training and exercise. Uh, it, it, those of you who watch the Olympic gymnastics, I'm always amazed, right? Because I couldn't do anything. Remember the balance beam? I, I watch uh, these girls flip in the air backwards and land on the balance beam. I don't even think I could get myself physically up onto it, right? Like I'd be so uh, unbalanced. I couldn't even stand on it, let alone do a flip. If I tried to flip on a balance beam, it'd be it. I'd be going to see Jesus right there. There'd be nothing left. Uh, they, imagine, we, we watched this uh, show yesterday on YouTube what is the training like to become a pole vaulter? And, you know, it was hilarious, and I felt so bad, but it, it was just reel after reel of this poor high school student. He'd, he'd miss where to go with the pole, or he'd go up, and then he'd come back down on his backside, or he'd kind of go up but miss the mat because he'd, he'd go off to the right or the left, or, or just do something so silly. I know it was painful, but it was hilarious. Uh, if you want, you know, some, some amusement, YouTube training for pole vaulting, and it's, it's just really comical. But training means this repeated 
exercise, doing some physical activity until it becomes muscle memory. Uh, You've done it so often that you just know how to do it, especially in the area of athletics. That's exactly how the author of Hebrews used it. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Last fall, a year ago this time, I started jogging again. And, you know, I'd, I'd left off jogging for a little time, but been about 17 years since I jogged. And so I had to use this app called Couch to 5K. And, and let me tell you, it's interval training. Has anybody else used Couch to 5K? Anybody admit like me? Okay, if you haven't, it's I will say, if you are a terrible runner or you've never run and you're trying to get to it, it really helped me. I hated it, but it helped me. So here's what it does. Uh, it's interval training. You, you either wear um, headphones or, or just turn the volume up on your phone. You jog holding your phone, and it'll have you jog starting for a whopping three minutes. And then you take two minutes to walk. And, and so you're doing those three minutes of jogging, two minutes of walking, and you repeat that like three times. So you're running for a whopping nine minutes at first. Let me tell you, I would be looking down at my phone to see, okay, am I close to my three minutes to where I can walk? And I'd been jogging for maybe 35 seconds. And I was like, oh man, I gotta go another two and a half minutes. This is gonna die. So it was miserable. And there were these tones. It would tell you, it had a certain beep saying, okay, you're five seconds from when you can walk. And I loved those tones. It just said, okay, joy, I can walk in a second. And then about five seconds before I had to jog, I'd hear different tones. And I almost started crying at times. I was like, I don't want to jog anymore. I've jogged for like a full three minutes. I don't want to do it. (laughs) It was hilarious. I was terrible. But if something happened after a few months, I I could jog for four minutes without stopping, and then five minutes. And then something else happened. I I got to where I could jog a mile, and then a mile and a half, and then two miles. Let me tell you, I'm still slow as molasses, and I still don't particularly enjoy jogging, but I can jog a lot farther than I could a year ago. And and something else is happening. Something's very slowly beginning to change. I kind of like the release of endorphins, the way my body feels as I've gone through this training, the way my legs are stronger, the way I can chase my kids around in my front yard and not be immediately winded. It, it, It is nice. There is some value to this bodily exercise. And that's what Paul means when he says, hey, physical exercise does have some value. If you're like me, especially a year ago, you're going to latch onto that fact of like, it only has some value, right? And it can kind of be this thing you use to justify never doing any physical exercise. Um, The point of this sermon is not to get everybody exercising, but, but do hear this. This is a temple, this body thing, from the Lord, and and we are meant to steward and take care of it well. And there is value in physical exercise. Uh, Even if it's just walking a little bit each day, it is an honor to the Lord to take care of the physical bodies God has given us. Now, what is of more value? That is this thing called godliness. Did you see that back in verse 8? Godliness is of value in every way. MasterCard ran these great commercials uh, probably a decade ago where it would have the different prices of things. And it would say, you know, uh, ballpark hot dog, $5. Uh, uh, Atlanta Braves baseball cap, $25. Uh, Tickets to the Braves game, you know, $250. Uh, The look on my kid's face when he catches a foul ball, priceless. You know, it was just, it was sweet commercials. And uh, go Atlanta Braves. I hope they pull it off, uh, you know, here at the World Series. But the idea behind Paul's phrase here when he says it's a value in every way means it's priceless. You couldn't put a price value on godliness. It's unlimited value. Now, if we asked, well, what does it mean, though, when he uses this phrase godliness? If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard godliness a while, right? But if a non-Christian friend asked you, hey, hey, what do you mean godliness? I, I don't hear that a lot. What does that mean? It could be a little bit of a struggle. So here's what godliness means. It is awesome respect for God. Those of you might have heard the phrase this way. It is the 
fear of God. Limitless value in acquiring the fear of God. You might ask, well, does godliness include, like, is it primarily learning about God or is it becoming like God? Is, is godliness mean I got to learn a whole bunch of stuff from the Bible about God or does it mean I need to change the way I live and become like God? Well, the answer there is yes. It, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Godliness includes learning about God. Peter will say it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God grants us godliness through knowing him. And, and Paul even will say at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that this mystery of godliness is that Jesus is revealed to us. This is what he says. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Godliness then is knowing Jesus from the Bible. We might ask, well, but does godliness include becoming like God? Of course, of course. Godliness is more than just knowing right facts about God. Peter also will say, hey, all that you see here, the, the world and everything, is, it's coming to an end, guys. And, and he'll say this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So we are to live godliness. Paul will also tell Timothy this same thing. He'll say, Timothy, if you're going to live out godliness, you need to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, just a few verses later. So you cannot train in godliness if you don't know God. What's going to happen, and this is so prevalent, you're going to become like whatever God you invent in your own head. I remember talking to a non-Christian friend, and, and he was willing to start reading the Bible with me, and it was excellent, it was wonderful. But he hadn't had any exposure to God prior to, to our beginning to read the Bible together. And I asked him, well, do you know anything about Jesus? And he said, well, I watched South Park, and they talked about Jesus some. Now, if you don't know, South Park is not the kind of show I would encourage you to show your kids. Uh, this is um, a, a pretty vulgar show. And, and I, I just told my friend, I said, well, I think we can do better for source material than South Park. Let's read the Bible and let that describe God as he is. So you can't train yourself in godliness if you don't know God. And you cannot train in godliness if you're not becoming God like the God you're learning about. Some of you in this room are already parents or grandparents, maybe even great-grandparents. Let me especially impress this upon you. One of the greatest responsibilities and joys you can have in the Christian life is to train your children to know God. Now, if you've tried to do a family devotion, especially if you haven't done one for a while, and you've got young kids, it might be a train wreck. It, they may pay no attention. They may be bouncing off the walls. They may not listen at all. Let me tell you, please keep with it. If you're a grandparent and you try to, you know, bring your kids or your grandkids rather to church when they're here or, or tell them some about God, it may seem like a train wreck. Like, why do I bother? They're not listening at all. But this is a God-assigned role to train up your children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And so let me just hold that out to you. Now, if I've heard one thing from parents or grandparents when I've said, well, hey, hey, it's your job primarily. It's not the church's job primarily to train up your children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. I get excuses, right? Uh, let me see if I can think of them. Well, pastor, I just don't know enough about God, and so I'm going to teach them wrong. 
or, or you know, um, well, I didn't go to seminary, so I, I don't have a Bible degree. Or, or probably just my favorite, well, pastor, isn't that your job? <laughs> you know, so there's, there's all kinds of excuses. And my goal with the time remaining this morning is to try to shoot down some of those excuses, right? So first off, if we read in Deuteronomy 6, it is the parent's job to teach their children about God. You can see it also in Ephesians 6. It is addressed to fathers to train their children in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. It doesn't say pastors train up all the kids in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. No, the pastor's job, the church's job, is to come alongside and be a family where we help one another. How exciting is it? I, I'm envisioning a day, in fact, it's happening right now. Uh, there are, there's another family at this church helping train my kids and some of your kids right now. They're coming alongside what I'm doing to train up my kids in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And that's beautiful and a God-honoring thing. What I want to do with our time remaining is just try to answer this question a little bit. What is God like? What is God like? What, what is the God of the Bible characterized by? Think about that for a second. Maybe a, a kid, five, six years old, asks you, hey, what is God like? If you want, raise your hand. Somebody give me just a, a short, you know, one sentence. How would you respond to that kid? What is God like? What would you tell him or her? He is loving. I love that. That's a, th we're going to get to that. You got, you got that one. St Chiquita banana sticker star on, on your account <laughs> for getting that one. Absolutely. And I love that he is revealed to us that way. What else? What is God like? Yeah. He is merciful. Amen. Thank you for sharing that one. What else? What is God like? He's a good father. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. What is God like? Forgiving, yes, I need that, absolutely. Yeah, what is God like? Faithful, all right, you guys are, you know, reading out of the script here, this is good. No, absolutely, good. Yeah, buddy. Full of grace, amen, amen. Uh, two more, what is God like? All powerful, yes, and I need that, uh, right, absolutely. One more, what else is God like, yeah. He is just. Yes, amen. That's good. All right, well, uh, I'm going to give you a few, and this might seem like a fire hose, but here's my encouragement. Latch on to say three or four of these, and let them be truths about God that guide you this week. Let these be truths about God that become what you live by You'll see these on the screen. The first is, God is unique. And if you are a note taker, th these are words worth writing down. God is unique. This means there is no one like our God. In fact, there really are no other gods. Everything else that claims to be a God is either telling a bald-faced lie or we find out in Scripture is fueled by demonic activity. There are no other gods. That's why you'll see sometimes that in the Bible when it refers to other gods, there'll be a lowercase g, and then when it refers to God, it's a capital G because there is one God. In fact, every Israelite child learned these words, and we should too. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two or three or four or five. There's, there's only one God. Second, God is creator. God is creator. So not only is he unique, but he is the one who makes everything that is from nothing. You, you ever think about that, right? When, when God says, uh, when it says in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not like, you know, he went to this um, universe store and brought, bought the, you know, one bajillion piece Lego set. And then he just was really good at putting it together. There was no universe store. There, there was no Lego set. There was no raw material. He had to speak those into existence first and then tell them what to do, right? It, he started with nothing. And then he tells this chaotic mass that he 
he brings into existence by his own will to, to be light and to separate light from darkness and to separate water from land and to, to this land to be filled first with uh, plants and then with birds and then with um, the fish and the animals and finally with us. It is incredible. And here's the other amazing thing. We find out in Revelation that God only, he doesn't only create, but he sustains everything that is every moment, right? Like if God took a sick day, the molecules of your body would spin out of existence, right? We just all spontaneously combust. I mean, this is mind-blowing to think about, but the creator is so faithful in his work that we continue to exist. When I go, a miracle has just occurred that the creator has done his job, so I continue to exist and breathe his air. It is wonderful to know that we have a creator and sustainer of all things. God is also infinite. Infinite and eternal. Infinite just means there are no limits that can be set on God. Eternal means he is not limited in any way by time. In fact, he invented time, exists outside of time, can use time for sure, but is by no means bound by time. And this is very, very different from us. We are creatures who are bound by time and space, right? You, you'll hear someone say, well, I can't be two places at once. Well, God can. <laughs> Watch this, he would say, you know. Uh, and you, you might say, hear somebody say, well, there aren't enough um, hours in a day or, or, or years in a lifetime. Well, God doesn't say that. He, he is, is in no way limited by time or space. Listen to the way he's described in Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, holy is his name. I will, or excuse me, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He's in two places at once. He's both in heaven and in the hearts of those he's chosen to save. I can't do that. You can't do that, but he can because he is not limited by time or space. God is infinite and eternal. He's also timely. God is timely. That means that while he's not bound by time, he's not ignorant of time. It's not like he shows up late or, or he forgets things. I, I'm to an age now where I have to put everything in my Google Calendar. And basically, I just do what my Google Calendar tells me to. Uh, if, I, if it's not in there, it's, it's probably going to get forgotten. And, and, but God's not like that, right? He doesn't forget. He doesn't go, oh, I'm, 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 I got caught in traffic and I couldn't get there in time. He is timely. And I think the place we see this the clearest is when God chose to send Jesus. It was at the perfect time in history, right? Right when the Pax Romana had come in effect to where the gospel could spread around the known world. The Romans, you know, built the first major world system of roads so the gospel could clearly travel. They, they started universalizing the language with the Greeks. By the time the Romans got here with Latin, there was an easy pathway for the gospel to spread. And so, Paul will say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That, the perfect time because God is timely. God is also all-powerful. That means he possesses all might. Uh, he is unopposable. You've known someone, right, who, who has tried to oppose God. Well, well, God may want me to do this, but I'm, I'm trying to do this instead. I, I wish we could, you know, phone call Jonah and ask him how that went for him when he tried to go against God's plan for his life. Christians, we have... We've tried to oppose God in so many ways. It's a lot like a little fly trying to fly against a Mack truck. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. That truck's going to win every time, and you'll find yourself going in the direction that God wanted you to go. He is all-powerful. In fact, John is given this vision where he hears four powerful angels singing about the superior power of God. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God all 
mighty, who was and is and is to come. No one can successfully oppose God because he is all-powerful. But he's also all-wise, and I'm so, so glad of this. God not only knows all things, but he uses that perfect knowledge to make every choice that accords fully with the best for that given situation. There is no choice he has ever made that would be anything other than wise. And again, this is not like us, right? Every one of us has done something stupid. (laughs) Um, At at one point when I was in uh, high school, Anybody remember what pogs were? Anybody else like me, like, waste a whole lot of money on pogs and are too afraid to admit it? It's okay. All right, Andrew, thanks, man. Like, we're together in this. No, uh, I remember having a conversation with my dad. I had just gotten a a paycheck for mowing lawns, and I went and blew it all on pogs. And my dad was like, Jared, what are you doing? You're going to be over this in like a month. And I said, no, dad, these are investment. These are going to be worth so much money someday. And, and sure enough, I mean, nobody's even heard of pogs now. I, I mean, I have to like really teach somebody. Darren, have you heard of pogs? Do you know what those are? No, no. See, he, he's, Darren, I'd have to show you these. You'd say, Jared, that was really stupid to waste your money on pogs. So here's how it goes. That was foolish, right? We've all done something foolish, but not, a, not God. He's never even spoken a foolish word. Everything that he does is wise. And that's why we get this from Isaiah 28, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Praise God, he is all wise. He's also all sovereign, all sovereign. That means he has complete and meticulous lordship over everything. From, from um, molecules to galaxies, he rules it all. This means that, for instance, your heart is not beyond the jurisdiction of God's rule. Your heart is not beyond the jurisdiction of God's rule because nothing is beyond the jurisdiction of God's rule. In fact, we even find out, in, in Matthew, we'll see this. If I was to ask you who rules one day in hell, you might be inclined to say Satan and you'd be dead wrong. God does because he rules everything. There is not one square inch of the universe that is not under the lordship of almighty God. He is all sovereign. And, and why I picked the human heart there is because that's exactly what the most powerful and rich king ever said. Solomon was raised up to be one of the wealthiest men in existence. And this is what he said about the king's heart. He says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, if God can control the wealthiest man's heart ever, I mean, I, th- I think my heart is not out of bounds for God. And if any of you have come to know your own propensity to walk away from God, you want him to be able to turn you back to him. I know I sure do. God is all sovereign. He's also righteous. Uh, If you're like me and you watch Ninja Turtles at all growing up, you remember Michelangelo saying righteous, and that did not help at all for understanding what the word means because he just kind of said it. Uh, God being righteous means that he thinks and chooses and does everything in a morally praiseworthy manner. Him being righteous means everything he does is right. Everything he does is right. And so again, we hear from Isaiah, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Nothing God thinks, says, or does is wrong. It is all right. And finally, God is holy. God is holy. Now, uh, I think... For a long time my Christian walk, I'd hear holy, and basically what would go on in my head is I would think, well, that's just kind of a synonym for righteousness. It just means God is right. And, and while God is right, the word for that is righteousness, God being holy is very similar but slightly different. God's holiness is a measure of how devoted he is to being right. 
It's almost like measuring horsepower on a car, right? Uh, a 900 horsepower car is going to feel very different from like a 104 horsepower car, right? Uh, there's, there's just a difference when you push that gas pedal down. If we were to measure essentially the horsepower of God's devotion to staying right, he would be holy. That is, he is perfectly and totally devoted to thinking, saying, and doing what is right. And the problem, right, comes up when uh, God's holiness encounters our sin. Uh, remember that fly and Mack truck thing? Uh, our sin, meeting a holy God, God is devoted to staying right. That's why in and of himself he cannot abide or live with sin. And we hear again the angels singing this, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory because he is so devoted to righteousness. It, it is just part and parcel of who he is. God is holy. Now, all of those that we've looked at so far, unique, creator, infinite, eternal, timely, all-powerful, all-wise, I can't even get them counted, sovereign, righteous, and holy, if you were going to sum these up, especially to like a child, you could talk to them about how big God is. The Bible reveals a very big God. How big is he? Well, he's all-powerful. He can do anything. How big is he? Well, he's all-wise. He knows everything. How big is he? Well, he's all-sovereign. He rules over everything. How big is he? Well, he uses all that power to do everything that is right. How big is he? Well, he's eternal and infinite. Not even time or space can limit this big God. He's so big, he can say, let there be light, and there is light. That is the big God revealed in the Bible. And we find in the Bible that God is also good. God is also good. And these are the things that show us he's good. First off, right off the bat, before anything else, we find that God is love. God is love. Why I say right off the bat? The Bible presents us with something that seems to be a contradiction. We already said there's only one God. And then something happens. We get this person the Father revealed to us as clearly God and clearly getting worship. And then we get this Son named Jesus revealed to us as clearly God and clearly deserving of worship. And then we get this third person called the Holy Spirit, clearly God and clearly deserving of worship. And if, you know, we did any math, we're like, well, wait a minute, which is it? Is it one or is it three? Is there one God or three gods? And if that blows your mind a little bit, you're, you're catching on. This is one of those things called the Trinity. It's nowhere in the Bible, but it just means three in one. Uh, our God is triune, three persons, one one God, and he has always existed this way, in perfect love. The Father loves the Son and delights for the Son to have joy. The Son loves the Father and delights to do the Father's will. The Father loves the Spirit and sends the Spirit to fill His Son and empower His ministry. The Son loves the Spirit and sends the Spirit into the world to change our hearts. The Spirit loves the Father and delights to accomplish His will. The Spirit loves the Son and is a joy to obey the Son in all things. It is a perfect vision of love. This is super important because, right, we can get the idea sometimes if we were to say, well, why did God make everything? We could say, well, maybe he was lonely, you know, just by himself, and he needed me to, to make sure he, he wasn't lonely. And that's, that's just could not be further from the truth. He has forever existed in a perfect, loving relationship called the Trinity. He didn't need us. He made us just out of his own good joy, not out of something that was lacking in himself. God is love. We see this uh, most clearly, I think, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. John tells the church this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It is intrinsic to his nature to be a loving God. 
God is also faithful in all his ways. That means he uses the fact that he's eternal and all-powerful and all-wise to make sure that no promise of his ever fails. Not once has God ever said, I promise I'll do that, and they had to say, well, well, but there were these circumstances that came up, and so I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I'm sorry. Not once. Every time we have a promise from God, we can depend that it has come true and will come true in its fullest sense one day. Paul is meditating on this when he tells the Corinthians that we have a trustworthy God. He says this in 2 Corinthians 1, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God is faithful. And then praise God. God is also merciful and gracious. That means he delights to show mercy or not punish us to the extent we deserve. And God delights to show us grace to give us what we don't deserve. You, you think of how different your walk with God would be is if, if he was only one but not the other. If he said, well, I'll be gracious to you. I'll give you things like air and food to eat and, and I'll give you a, a body and a life and I'll give you some joy on this planet, but I'm not a merciful God. One day you're gonna have to pay for your sins. Or, or the alternative, let's say he was merciful but not gracious. Um, I, I won't punish you to the extent you deserve, but I can never fully forgive you. You're gonna have to live somewhere apart from me because, I mean, after all, you have sinned. We need a God who's both merciful and gracious, who does not give us what we deserve, but gives us what we don't deserve. This is what we hear, again, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, God who extends both mercy and grace. And we find that God is just. That is, he does punish wickedness and rebellion and sin to the full extent that such crimes deserve. When you have been a victim of a crime, and I mean a bad crime, and, and, and there's a court proceeding or, or investigation going on, you don't want a judge who's going to hear a plaintiff say, well, yeah, yeah, I did those terrible, terrible things. But I also, you know, worked with my local Boy Scout troop. Can you please just let me off this time? And the judge says, you know, hey, you, you were wrong in that, but sure, you can have a pass. It's, it's okay. We'll just sweep this one under the rug. That's a bad judge. You, you want some form of justice for somebody to affirm what that person did was wrong. And there's no excuse for what was done. And let me tell you, God is just. There will come a day when every one of us will have to stand and give an account for the things that we did that were wrong and against ultimately him. So Moses sang as, as the Israelites are almost making their way into the promised land. They've, they've been freed from oppression and slavery in Egypt. Moses sings of God's justice. He says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. God is just. Now, praise God, he is also patient, patient. He is not driven by quick reactions and whims. He, he doesn't act prematurely. He's not quickly angered. He, he, he's not um, got like some weak endurance, like, well, man, I can put up with you uh, six times, but on the seventh, that's it, you're done. You know, he's not like that. And any of you who, you know, have maybe watched, and I don't mean this in any judgmental way on, on people here, I promise, but if you watch like someone else's kids who are raised different from yours at some point, and, and they just kind of 
creep under your skin a little bit, you know? You could, you could be patient with them for maybe an hour or two, but then, then when the parents get back, you're like, okay, yeah, take them, please. Yep, yep, go ahead, go ahead. You know, it's, God's not like that, right? He doesn't, he doesn't look at my life and go, Jared, that's it. I'm out of patience. You just, you just have worn it out. I, I, I'm looking at the little Pez dispenser for you, Jared, and there's no more candy in it. You're done. That's not how God works. He is patient. He suffers long with us. That's what it means to be patient, to be long-suffering. And why is he like this? Well, Peter reveals it to us. God is patient because he desires to show us mercy. Listen to the way Peter words it in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're somewhere around 2,000 years of God being patient since he sent his son to die on the cross and rise from the dead. That's a patient God giving us time to repent and to trust in Jesus. God is patient. God is also unchanging. This came up in our uh, men's Bible study this morning, and, and it was so good. This just means, right, God doesn't change his mind. The fancy word is immutable, and I loved what one pastor said when, when someone asked him, what is immutability? And, and he said, well, it just means he's not mutable. There you go. Hooray. It means unchanging, guys. It means God doesn't have one way one day and then a different way the next. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to show you mercy today, but I don't know about tomorrow. It, it doesn't mean that he's, he's one day just, but, you know, the next day he might be done with that whole justice thing. He is unchanging changing. And the, the most precious way we see this is with Jesus Christ and his disposition to us so that the author of Hebrews can crescendo and almost sing, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is also beautiful. This may be one that you haven't thought about before. God is beautiful. I want you to close your eyes for just a minute. Don't fall asleep, <laughs> but close your eyes. And imagine a place that you know is beautiful. You got it in mind? Is it a, a mountaintop with sun just kind of painting those trees and call, fall colors? Is it a, a, a sunset maybe on a beach somewhere or a sunrise uh, as the sun kind of pokes? Up? Is it looking up at the stars or is it a, a beautiful island somewhere? Okay, open up your eyes. Now, the reason those are beautiful is because the God who made them is a beautiful God. His mind, his creativity, his heart collides and combines in such a way that he makes the world beautiful. A beautiful world requires a beautiful God. And so when we enjoy the world as he's created it, it should drive us to praise God for his beauty. Think about these things. Flowers, sunsets, mountains, seahorses, stars, ants, children, trees, snowflakes, whales, the face of the woman I love. There is a God behind these things, and he is beautiful. This is what the warrior King David said. He sang this. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27, verse 4. God is beautiful. And last, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Compassion is one of those words that's easier felt than defined. You know somebody who has shown you compassion. Maybe they just put an arm around you and didn't say a word when you were hurting. Maybe they just kind of came over and sat there. Maybe they did share words with you, a shared story from their life. I don't know. But compassion means they felt with you what you felt. You were at your wit's end. They came and, and didn't get on to you about not being more cheerful. They were sad with you. 
You're on top of the world. You just finished something, some project or or a degree or something. And and even if they didn't feel like, man, they got excited with you. They felt your happiness with you. That's compassion. Compassion is feeling with another. Did you know God feels with us? He's not this impersonal force like is in Star Wars. Though I like the movies. God's so much better than the force. He feels with us. He's a person. He, he knows what it feels like to feel sorrow as well as joy. He considers the hearts and lives of each of his creatures. It's not without reason that the Holy Spirit works on our hearts. He feels what we feel. This is what God says in Isaiah 54 verse 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. We could take all of these amazing things about God, his, his love, his wisdom, his beauty, his mercy, his, his power and might, And you can have an amazing time with the Lord considering that he's all this at the same time, right? So he's not just loving on Monday, just on Tuesday, wise on Wednesday. He is the wise, powerful, loving God all the time. So think about it, right? When he says, I love you, it's a wise love. It is the perfect kind of love for you. It's also a powerful love. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands if he has so decided to love you. When when we think of God's wisdom, it's a wisdom governed by patience and mercy. It is amazing to consider that God is all of these at once. And so, Paul wants Timothy to train himself in godliness And that's going to start with knowing who God is from the Bible. And he's going to just simply say, look, Timothy, the reason you should do this is because it's got benefit everywhere, both for this life, the life to come. We just, as we conclude, challenge you to take seriously learning about God. Time in the Word, time with other Christians, learning about God, coming to a Bible study, listening to to sermons, but, but really taking in who God is. What's going to happen? You're going to worship God as he is. You're going to be guarded against self-glory. You're going to help others learn about God. You're going to have this hope that no one can steal. And what's going to happen in heaven one day? You're never going to exhaust learning about the God who loves you. I want you to think of heaven as this unending process of learning more about God. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, says there's a 10,000-hour rule to success. Some of you know the name Bill Gates, uh, the the founder of Microsoft. And if you're like me, you kind of assume that Bill Gates was just this genius, like like came out of the womb with a computer or something. Uh, You know, just just super, super smart with computers. And and Gates was super smart with computers, not, not arguing that, but... Basically, what happened is this series of events that allowed him, by the time he was a freshman in college at Harvard, to have had hours and hours and hours at a computer. First, he happened to go to a middle school where a mom had just started a computer program, a computer club, rather. And so there was a computer for him to practice on in middle school. And then he, he, another mom at the school uh, needed some, some software testers for brand new software. So uh, he, being on the computer club, was selected to, to come test this software on weekends. And then, uh, because he did that, when that company went defunct, another company uh, let him come do part-time job testing their payroll software were looking for bugs. And then when that didn't, you know, pan out, the University of Washington, even when he was in high school, allowed him to come and borrow time on a computer. And then when that ended, he found that there was a computer terminal at the nursing college at University of Washington that nobody used between 3 and 6 a.m. So he snuck up there as a high school student and got three hours of computer time every day uh, on the computer. And so by the time Bill Gates graduates high school, he's been programming for over seven years and has had something like 11,000 hours of computer programming. 
It's no wonder that he could start Microsoft before anybody else could. He'd poured hours and hours and hours of his life into learning computers. Well, Paul might say, hey, Gates, yes, learning computers is of some value, but godliness, learning about God, it's so much more value. Christian, what would it take for you to reach 10,000 hours of learning about God? Suppose you did 30 minutes of some type of learning about God five times a week. Well, in, in two weeks then, you'd do 10 hours. Take that out for 50 weeks a year, that would mean, uh, you know, you would get in, um, you know, every two years or so, somewhere around 100 to 125 hours, depending on your pace, and then you take that out uh, another 10, it'd take eight years at around that time frame to reach 1,000 hours of learning about God. That means to get to 10,000 hours would take 80 years of learning about God. That's a lifetime. My point is, there's no subject out there better than learning about God. May we be a people that says, yeah, I'm going to learn about God forever, but I want to give my life. I want to obsess over learning about the God who loved me. We're going to close in prayer here now, but I want to give you one brief opportunity, and I'm not going to belabor this. I want to give anyone here an opportunity who wants to take that first step in knowing God. And here's how it works. If you've never come to a point where you said, God... I have sinned. I've done wrong against you. And I believe that, Jesus, you came to save me. Please forgive me of my sins, and I commit to follow you. That's what the first step looks like. And you just do it in prayer. It's not something that somebody magically does for you. I don't have a wand over here that says, if I just tap you with this wand, you'll be saved. It's something between you and Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray and just invite anybody who wants to to make that first step today. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this time this morning. Jesus, I ask that you go with us today, uh, that you not let us leave uh, with these things just going in one ear and out the other. Help us, God, to be different because you are God. And I ask these things, Jesus, in your most precious name. Amen.